Mark, whenever you're ready, um, just feel free to get started there. Uh, Hobson said uh, th these two further things. Uh, the one was he said that if you if you uh, look at this random uh, mental activity that's generated uh, in the way I've just described, uh, you can find meaning in it in the same way as you can find meaning in an ink blot. Uh, the ink blot itself is meaningless. It's just a random uh, uh, outcome. Uh, of how the ink fell uh, when you uh, uh, when uh, and when you when you fold the page uh, on which the ink blot uh, has landed, it creates this meaningless pattern. But you can find meaning in it. You can say it reminds me of a butterfly, or it reminds me of a bat, um, or a vampire, uh, and this might say something about uh, you, uh, the meaning that you find in the ink blot. But the crucial thing is that the meaning isn't actually in the ink blot. You have projected it onto the ink blot. Uh, you have it's 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 it comes after the fact. Um, and so the, the the says Hobson, dreams are inherently meaningless things, just like ink blots are inherently meaningless things. And psychoanalysts project meanings onto them. Uh, in exactly the way that um, that um, uh, worried uh, Popper, uh, that you know you can you can do anything you like uh, if the method that you use is finding meaning be behind things uh, rather than um, the, the kinds of methods that that Hobson and Jouvet um, and and Izarinsky and Kleitman and Dement used, where there are uh, objective ways of testing your theories um, and and uh, uh, verifying uh, by falsifiable predictions uh, whether you're on the right track or not. Um, so this was one of the things that Hobson said. Uh, the other thing that Hobson said was, uh, uh, as I've told you, therefore the Freudian theory must be wrong. Um, the, the dreams do not work the way that Freud said. There are no wishes, there are no motivations, there's no psychodynamics. Um, there's no inherent mental process behind the dreams at all, uh, and and and, uh, and so Hobson presented these findings um, to the a meeting of the American Psychiatric Association uh, in, 19, in 1976, and after the lecture, uh, a vote was taken as to whether or not Freudian dream theory was scientifically viable anymore, and that vote went two to one against Freud. Um, this was a momentous occasion, uh, bearing in mind how influential psychoanalysis had been um, in American psychiatry. For the assembled membership of, the, of that American Psychiatric Association to concede that the Freudian dream was not scientifically tenable anymore um, brought us back to uh, the idea uh, that uh, the, the, the popular notions uh, of dreams being meaningful, there being some hidden uh, message embedded in them uh, from the other side, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Even in its uh, in its sort of biologized version uh, that Freud came up with, where saying that the other side is in fact the unconscious mind, uh, that that uh, the message is, is really a message from your own inner world uh, rather than from uh, some some um, metaphysical. Um, dimension, etc., uh, that all of this was just bunk, uh, that dreams were meaningless, inherently meaningless, random activation of the cortex uh, by um, the firing of these colonial neurons in the ponds. 
activation followed by synthesis. Um, I began a study, uh, which I'm now going to report to you. I wasn't especially interested in Freudian dream theory. It had been debunked. Uh, I was a neuropsychologist, um, and what I was interested in was the synthesis side, uh, the cortical side um, of Hobson's theory. Uh, I predicted that if, if what the cortex is doing um, is joining the dots, the randomly activated uh, dots, as it were, um, in the cortex, then damage to different parts of the cortex should uh, have differential effects on the content of dreams. Damage to the visual cortex might result in non-visual dreams, I predicted. Uh, damage to the somatosensory cortex, um, which leads to um, hemianesthesia and hemiplegia, paralysis of one side of the body, uh, should have us moving uh, in our dreams with only one half of our bodies. Um, damage to the language cortex uh, should result in nonverbal dreams and so on. Um, all of these predictions, I want to tell you, were disconfirmed. None of that happens. It was a great surprise to me. The only one of my predictions which, which was in fact confirmed, I, I, I predicted that the prefrontal cortex, this part of the brain, um, which sets human beings apart from chimpanzees and other primates, we have very highly developed prefrontal cortex. Um, this part of the brain is in charge, as it were. It's the executive control center of the mind. Um, since we do not seem to be in charge of what happens in our dreams, I predicted that damage here would have no effect on dreams. I predicted that this part of the brain does not participate in dreaming. And that proves to be correct. Damage to this part of the brain um, has no effect on dreams. Uh, blind raters, that is to say, people who do not know whether they're looking at the dreams of a patient with no frontal lobes or the dreams of you and me, uh, they are unable to distinguish the dreams from each other. That was the one and only of my predictions that was confirmed in this study that I began in 1985 um, and ended 10 years later. Uh, it took me 10 years to do the study because I wasn't studying rats and cats. I was studying human beings because I needed dream reports. I needed to see how the content of dreams was altered by damage to different parts of the brain. So this slide here, uh, the dark blue area, corresponds to the area of the brain that we're talking about, the prefrontal cortex. Damage here has no effect on dreams. Um, but what I found, um, the other things I found were really um, uh, equally interesting, if not a lot more so. And these other findings were surprises. The first uh, surprise is indicated by this light blue area uh, in the top left uh, uh, image on the screen. This is the mesopontine tegmentum. This is the part of the brain uh, that is responsible for generating REM sleep, the part of the brain that Juve and even more precisely Hobson had identified as the dream generator. It's here, this area here. Now, what I found was that damage here, although it does lead to a loss of REM sleep in human beings, just as it does in rats and cats, uh, it does not lead to a loss of dreaming. That these patients, uh, I had 18 of them with damage in this part of the brain. Uh, by the way, I studied uh, 361 patients. 18 of them had damage here, and they all reported ongoing dreams. Um, and even if you wake these patients up during um, the middle of the night, uh, uh, you, you get, no, dream, you get um, uh, no REM, but you do get dream reports. 
So this was a really shocking surprise because the ABCs of behavioral neuroscience uh, state that if a part of the brain is responsible for a particular mental function, then loss of that part of the brain should lead to a loss of that mental function. Uh, but what I found was it applies to, uh, to REM sleep. You have a loss of REM sleep, but you do not have a loss of dreams. That means on the ABCs that I spoke of, that this part of the brain cannot be the part that's responsible for dreaming, uh, that there is in fact a dissociation between REM sleep and dreams, uh, that although uh, REM sleep is lost with damage here in all species, um, we can determine in human beings that dreaming is not lost. This suggests that dreaming and REM sleep are not the same thing. Uh, this was even more strongly confirmed uh, by virtue of the fact that I found that damage here um, in what's called the parieto-occipital junction, this, this area of the brain, um, that damage here to this part of the brain which is responsible for mental imagery, um, that damage here leads to a loss of dreaming, which is not surprising because if you can't generate a mental image, uh, how can you generate a dream? But these patients continue to have REM sleep. That's what we call a double dissociation of function. In other words, damage here leads to a loss of REM sleep with a preservation of dreaming, and damage here to these brown areas leads to a loss of dreaming but preservation of REM sleep. So dreaming and REM sleep were doubly dissociable. Even more interesting, and this is the last of the several findings that uh, I uh, made, but I won't report them all, uh, it was that damage in this area marked in red. Red means important. Uh, damage to this part of the brain, um, which I'll show you on this slide, uh, it's the white matter underneath the cortex here on both sides. Damage deep inside of the, of the forebrain um, underneath the cortex over here on both sides. This too leads to a loss of dreaming with preservation of REM sleep. So my main focus after that finding was what is this part of the brain doing? Uh, this part marked in red, because clearly this is crucial for dreaming. Unlike the brown area where there's no surprise, if you can't generate mental imagery, you can't generate dreams. Um, it wasn't clear at all why damage here should lead to a loss of dreaming. It wasn't clear what this part of the brain is doing uh, that's so important for dreaming, because it is clearly doing something really important for dreaming, something essential for dreaming, because damage here leads to a loss of dreams. Uh, here are uh, here's a, a rough and ready uh, slide, uh, the fac a facsimile of the damage in my patients, um, the, the actual nine patients I had with damage over here, uh, all reported uh, uh, loss of dreams, and it was possible to show that they continued to have REM sleep. And if I woke them up from REM sleep, I got no dream reports. Um, I had only nine patients here, which is not enough. Uh, to be completely sure that what you found so unexpectedly um, can be used as a basis for coming to the really surprising conclusion that dreaming and REM sleep are two different functions. Um, but when I looked at this slide, I looked at this overlay uh, of the damage in my nine patients, I was reminded of the fact that this part of the brain uh, was in fact um, deliberately targeted by psychosurgeons um, in the 1930s and 1940s um, when they performed an operation called prefrontal leucotomy 
they severed the fibers in that part of the brain for the treatment of psychosis. It was found that if you cut those fibers, uh, then psychotic patients uh, improve in the sense that they no longer suffer hallucinations and delusions. And I went back to the old uh, reports of the mental effects of this operation. Um, and what I found um, in, in hundreds of cases reported by uh, Jerome Frank uh, in America, by Partridge in England, by Schindler in Germany, was that cutting these fibers in these psychotic patients led not only to a loss of hallucinations and delusions, but also to two other things. Uh, one was that the patients were no longer motivated. They lost their volitional oomph. Uh, they lost their motivational drive. They were described as adynamic, akinetic, abulic, amotivational, aspontaneous. But in addition, what was observed was, thirdly, that they no longer dreamt. And Schindler went so far as to say that if, after the operation, the patient continues to dream, this is a poor prognostic sign. It means the operation hasn't worked. And that uh, made sense to me because I thought, well, um, if you're able to generate a dream, which is, after all, a delusional and hallucinatory state, uh, then you're still able to generate hallucinations and delusions, uh, the very thing that the operation was meant to uh, prevent. And so Schindler's observation that this is a bad prognostic sign uh, made me uh, made, made sense to me in, in light of my findings um, that these patients, patients with damage here, uh, my findings, which in fact turned out not to be original because the old psychosurgeons had found the same thing. Damage here leads to a loss of dreaming. And now the operation uh, prefrontal leucotomy uh, was abandoned uh, in the 1950s not for ethical reasons, interestingly enough, but rather because um, a new treatment for psychosis became available uh, in the form of antipsychotic drugs. And antipsychotic drugs, very interestingly, act on a pathway, block activity in a pathway that courses through exactly this area. Here is that pathway. It's called the mesocortical, mesolimbic dopamine system. Now, remember, I told you that the part of the brain over here that generates REM sleep, um, it releases a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine, which activates the forebrain. But the part of the brain uh, that we're talking about here uh, is not cholinergic, but rather dopaminergic. Uh, the neurotransmitter of interest in this circuit is dopamine. And antipsychotic medications still to this day block activity in this pathway by blocking dopamine. They are dopamine blockers. So that led me to the hypothesis that this is the circuit uh, that generates dreams rather than the circuit that generates REM sleep. I then proceeded to test uh, that hypothesis uh, by means of uh, the experimental method that Popper says we must use. In other words, um, I uh, generated falsifiable predictions. I said that if we take normal subjects and we give them antipsychotic drugs, in other words, we block dopamine in this circuit, uh, they should have fewer dreams. Um, and uh, if we boost dopamine in that circuit by giving levodopa, dopamine boosters, uh, then the, 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 the research participants should report increased dreams. 
And that's exactly what I found. Uh, and a colleague of mine, Ernst Hartmann, uh, found the same thing, that uh, if you give uh, research participants dopamine, they have more dreams, more emotionally intense dreams, they have longer dreams, they have more bizarre dreams, and they have more nightmares. In fact, everything about dreamness that we measured was increased by dopamine. And conversely, dopamine blockade led to less frequent dreams, shorter dreams, less emotionally intense dreams, less bizarre dreams, and fewer nightmares. So the predictions were confirmed. Uh, by the way, uh, the, the, the alternative prediction uh, arising from the cholinergic hypothesis uh, was disconfirmed. Uh, in fact, if you block acetylcholine with a drug called scopalamine, which is a which is an anticholinergic, um, on Hobson's theory, this should lead to a loss of dreams or a reduction in dreams, but it does the opposite. Um, these patients not only continue to dream, these uh, research participants, they in fact report more dreams. Uh, they even dream uh, during the day in the sense that they hallucinate uh, uh, during waking life. So this is the, this is the value of, of Popperian science, of falsifiable predictions. You can compare one theory to another, um, and you can confirm one uh, and disconfirm another. But uh, this is only one method, uh, the method of, um, of pharmacological manipulation. Uh, there are other methods that were applied to. In fact, I shouldn't say it's only one method. I've so far reported two methods. Uh, the one is that severing these fibers, in other words, the lesion method, uh, damaging these fibers leads to a loss of dreams. Uh, and the chemical method, blockading those fibers, leads to a reduction in dreams. My colleague, Alan, Hop Alan Brown, uh, then used this method called positron emission tomography, where you image uh, where, which parts of the brain are activated in, in a particular mental state. Uh, the, the, the middle row here uh, is during dreaming sleep, REM sleep, remember, which is when 90% of dreams occur. Uh, what he showed, interestingly, as I found with the lesion method, I showed that damage to the prefrontal cortex has no effect on dreams. Um, Brown found that the prefrontal cortex is not activated during dreams. In fact, he shows here, this is the part of the brain that deactivates as you fall asleep, the frontal lobes. Um, and when it reactivates during REM sleep, this part of the brain does not reactivate. So uh, this is consistent with what I found, but also consistent with what I found is that what activates most intensely uh, on positron emission tomography during dreaming sleep is the mesocortical, mesolimbic dopamine system. There it is, switched on like a Christmas tree. Um, and this is very interesting. Uh, this clearly is the part of the brain that is most active as we enter uh, dreaming sleep. Interestingly, what also activates um, is this area here, which is where my patients had damage, my patients who had damage here in the parieto-occipital junction, the part of the brain that generates mental imagery, I showed that damage here, damage here leads to a loss of dreaming. And Brown's study showed that not only is the dopamine system activated very intensely during dreams, but also there's an activation of these uh, perceptual cortices, uh, the parieto-occipital region uh, during dreaming sleep. So this confirmed 
the, the, the pharmacological and lesion uh, findings that this is the area uh, that is most um, in intensely involved in the generating of dreams. Uh, the two further studies, uh, these two studies here, um, used two other methods. Dahan showed that by recording from single cells, he showed that these dopamine neurons fire at maximal rates during REM sleep. And Lena found, using another method whereby she measured the amount of dopamine that's released, it's called, uh, it's called microdialysis, she showed that dopamine uh, release is maximal uh, during dreaming sleep. So uh, now we have lesion evidence that shows that damage to this pathway leads to loss of dreaming. We have pharmacological evidence that chemical boosting of this pathway leads to increased dreaming. Single cell recordings of the neurons at the origin of this pathway showed they fire maximally during, um, during dreaming sleep. And measuring the release of dopamine at their terminals shows that dopamine uh, is released maximally during dreaming sleep. So all of these five different lines of evidence uh, led us to conclude that this is indeed the part of the brain that generates dreams. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to hear the full version, you can do so with a Weekend University Premium Membership. This gets you access to our master library of over 230 talks and interviews with the world's leading psychologists, professors, and authors, as well as transcripts, CPD certification, quizzes, and unlimited access to the recordings from our annual conferences. For more information, please go to theweekenduniversity.com forward slash membership.